Good morning, everyone. Uh, it was just so cool to just have a small part in that conversation, and I loved um, walking with Trent and others who walked alongside of him to see you know, that, that God can use each one of us where we're at, in our spheres, in our locations, uh, for his glory and for his purposes. I just want to emphasize the, the walk next week and the time to serve event at the tables. I truly believe that one of the ways that we show the community that we care for them is by our presence. It's by showing up. It's by being servants to all. In fact, one of the core elements that Jesus told us about being a disciple was being a servant. He said, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. People will know that you're a follower of Christ when you serve them. So we're continuing along in our conversation, Jesus Conversations. This series is four vignettes from John. I've also encouraged you to read a book along with me, Sharing Jesus Without Freaking Out. It's a great title, and, and the reason it's a great title is because it expresses the reality that we have fears, just as Pastor James had said. I have a book club that's been meeting, um, well, we met for the first time, and we're going through this book together. And by the way, if that's of interest to you, I'm thinking of holding another book club in the month of June, and I would love to open that up again if others would like to do that. It'll probably be on Tuesday nights. Let me know. So when we were having this book club discussion, I just said to everyone, all right, let's put our fears on the table. So we started talking out loud about our fears, and this is the various fears that people said that they experience. Fear of rejection, mess it up, confrontation. Here's a big one. How to start? How do I start this? I'm feeling locked into a formula. How do I help someone who knows nothing or very little you know, those are big fears that we carry into this dynamic. And it's interesting that we have these fears because evangelism isn't supposed to be a fearful thing. As we were reading the book, one of the biggest fears that they identified in the book is many of us have the fear of public speaking. That's right. Standing up in front of a room full of people and talking is a fearful thing. And that's because you guys are scary. You know, I just want you to know that. They say in Gallup studies that fear of public speaking is the second biggest fear. It's only underneath the fear of stakes. So think about that. Fear of spiders, fear of flying, fear of heights. Many of us would rather dangle off the edge of a building than we would tell someone else about Jesus because of that fear. I think we've got to change some perceptions here. Let me ask you this. When was the last time you had a really good conversation with someone? What did you talk about? How did the conversation get initiated? What did you enjoy about the conversation? I know for me, I love conversations. I love the dialogue. I love hearing the ideas that other people bring to the table. I love the back and forth. Conversations are a powerful mode of communication. And the last time I checked, no one has the fear of conversations, unless, of course, you're a hermit. We love conversation. 
Jesus, of course, had a preaching ministry. He had a big platform. People would gather around him by thousands to listen to him communicate. But as I read through the Gospels, I also notice that he's a great conversationalist. In fact, it seems like more often than not, he moves the needle most in a person's spiritual life through the one-to-one level of communication and not the mass level of communication. So we're going to take a look at one of these conversations, John chapter 3. Now, John is going to use a literary device that is called discourse. Discourse is the literary device where basically he takes a conversation that was probably hours long. There was probably significant discussion. However, when we read it, we read it in about two to three minutes. And that means that he's taking this conversation and he's shortening it for us. So let's pick up John chapter three, verses one through 15. The story picks up. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know And bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, normally when I walk through these passages, we go in linear fashion through the text. Uh, We're going to do it a little differently this morning. We're going to look at the conversation from two different perspectives, that of Nicodemus and that of Jesus. Because again, we are analyzing Jesus's approach. Remember what I said to you last week, if you were with us, Everyone comes into a conversation with a whiteboard. This whiteboard represents a person's worldview, and they don't come into that conversation with a blank whiteboard unless they are a child, right? So they come in with their whiteboard filled up. 
Now, what's on a person's whiteboard? Well, it's not like they wear a sign that says, hello, my name is John, and this happens to be my worldview. No, I learn about a person's worldview through listening to them. We get a lot of information about Nicodemus' worldview in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. What is this telling us? Well, we have this individual who is highly religious, sincere. He believes that he's following God's will by practicing this rigid form of religion, He's a part of the ruling class, the who's who of Jerusalem. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. So he's coming to Jesus with a lot of things on his whiteboard. In fact, Jesus says he's a pretty prestigious guy. In verse 10, he says to him, you're the teacher of Israel, not a teacher. So it's interesting. Now notice how he comes to Jesus. First thing we see is that he came at night. Why do you go and have a conversation with someone at night when you're the teacher of Israel? Why be so clandestine? Well, it turns out that Nicodemus was intrigued by Jesus, but he also didn't want to be associated with Jesus, right? See, people sense that they have something to lose when they come to Jesus. Oftentimes, it might be their social standing. It could be other concerns on their heart. We can't forget that. Now, from our perspective, we say of that person, well, they got everything to gain. This is good for them. They need Jesus, and that's absolutely true. But their perspective is different. Jesus acknowledged this in his parables. In fact, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, he gives us this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, the man sells everything because there's so much to gain in selling all that he has for the sake of the treasure. But what if the man doesn't perceive yet that there's treasure in the field? And you're coming to the man and you're saying, you need to sell everything you have and buy this field. That's where a lot of people are at. So you're telling me that I need to follow this, this Jesus person and, and that has implications for my life. You know, I was raised a certain way. What are my parents going to think? I, I run in certain social circles. What are my friends going to think? Are they going to think that I'm a Jesus freak, that I've, I've just kind of lost myself to religion? And, and then you have all of these other decisions to make, like I want to live my life in a certain way, and this has implications for that too. It's a big decision to be willing to sell everything you have in order to buy a field. Nicodemus also asks Jesus three questions. Now, you can actually outline this passage by way of these three questions. That's how John arranges this discourse for us. I'm putting these questions in my own words. The first question is, who are you really? 
The second question is, how can I make sense of what you are saying? That's verse four. And then the third question is, how could I possibly be so wrong in my understanding? So when you look at that first question in verse three, notice that Nicodemus doesn't ask a question outright. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher, come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But we've all been in those conversations where someone is saying something on the surface, but they're implying something different underneath the surface. And I believe that Nicodemus is really saying, who in the world are you? How are you doing these things? What are you really about? It kind of morphs into another question. You see, Jesus explains to Nicodemus that he would need to be born again. Now, when he asks that incredulous question of, well, how's a man supposed to go back into his mom's womb and then be born again? He's not doing that because he's never heard of that term before. Rabbis in this day actually had an expression. They said that a proselyte, so that's someone who newly comes into the Jewish face, who embraces Judaism, is like a newborn child. You see what Jesus is implying to Nicodemus? He's telling the teacher of Israel who's in the who's who that you haven't undergone that experience yet. Whoa. Whoa, what does he mean by that? I thought I was all set. And in verse 9, Jesus really blows his mind. And he says that that spiritual rebirth comes by way of the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. So now Nicodemus is fundamentally questioning himself. How could I have missed this? How could I have been so wrong about everything that I thought I knew and I understand? I want to suggest this morning that it's that existential crisis that comes upon a person in a faith conversation that is the hardest part of their spiritual journey. Remember, someone has been committed to a way of life, a thought process. They were convinced I know what's best for my life. I know how I ought to live. And all of a sudden, a seed of doubt has been cast upon everything. Uh, Last year, I was having some Jesus conversations with a college student. He had reached out. He was a very smart kid. He'd grown up in an atheistic household. And I'm telling you, when I say smart, I mean smart, like running intellectual circles around me, wants to talk about all manner of subject. Some of the things I'm like, I haven't even thought about that for 12 years. Like, this is crazy, the kind of questions that he's asking. But you know what happened? Somewhere along the way, as he was just looking out at the world, the seed of doubt came in. He said, I'm reaching out because I don't know if my materialistic worldview works anymore. Okay, what's that? Well, I talked about it a little bit last week. That's the viewpoint that unless I can see it, taste it, touch it, unless science can explain it, it must not be real. 
It rejects all things supernatural. So this guy, he's a thinker, and he comes into this conversation, and he is hitting me with both barrels. We're talking about everything, current situations, like the Christian traditional view on the LGBTQ plus question, uh, creation, uh, the black eyes of the church over the time in history where they're like, well, why did the church do this, and why did they accept that? and why this and why that and we're going back and forth and you know what I did in the conversation I listened I asked questions and of course I spoke into things and explained how Christians understood them as I've grown in my ability to have Jesus conversations I've adopted this principle and the principle is that you don't have to prove the claims of Christianity. You just need to present them clearly. Of course, I'm going to answer questions. Of course, I'm going to respond to concerns. But at the end of the day, I've come to the realization that I can never make another person change their mind. I can only speak to the truth and the story of the gospel and explain that as clearly as I know. Now, in the middle of this conversation, he goes through another existential crisis. In fact, we're pretty knee-deep talking through a lot of different stuff, and suddenly he just starts weeping in the middle of the conversation. And he says, you know, here's the thing. I know that if I embrace this, that if I accept this, then I have to reject everything that I've ever known and ever believed before. I know that if I embrace this, that I'm accepting the reality that if my parents don't come to the Christian faith, that they could be going to hell. And then he stops in the middle of the conversation. And he says, you know what? I think it might be easier if I just stick with my materialism. I just think that that's going to work out better for me. Then I don't have to think about these things. And I said to him, you're right. That would be easier for you. But I'm not convinced that you want to live the rest of your life believing a lie. Let me say this to you this morning. You don't have to alleviate tension for other people. We sometimes do that. We, we want to alleviate the tension. Oh, just make this decision. It'll all work out. You know, there'll be a big bow on top of the, the package. We get pie in the sky. It's all going to go perfectly for you if you make this decision. Do you know that Jesus never alleviated the tension for people? He never did that. He was forthright. If you follow me, it's probably going to put a strain in your relationships, It's going to change the way that you relate to money for the rest of your life. If you follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. And they knew back then that that was an instrument of death, meaning I'm going to get persecuted, rejected, reviled if I follow him. He never alleviated the tension. Why? Because following Jesus is a colossal life decision. And if you're going to do it, you'd better know clearly what you're getting yourself into. So look at how Jesus approaches Nicodemus now in this conversation. I first recognize 
as Nicod, uh, Jesus is talking with him, that, that he's approaching Nicodemus at his level. You see this clearly when you put John 3 and John 4 side by side. In John 3, we have this self-righteous accommodition named Nicodemus. And then in John 4, we have this nondescript woman at the well who we kind of discern is a social pariah because she's coming to the well when no other women are around. And she's had like five husbands. And as Jesus talks to these two individuals, he talks at their level. Nicodemus needs that kind of high flutant accommodation, philosophical kind of language. Born again, born of water and spirit, terms he understands. Whereas the woman at the well, it's more like here's a felt need in your life. You come to this well every day. You need living water. Totally different. The other thing that we observe is that he expands upon familiar concepts, but he adds gospel significance. Why does Jesus confront Nicodemus with this idea that he needs to be born again? He knows the Bible. Aren't you the teacher of Israel? Don't you know these things? Why are you confused right now? Well, it's because he had the concept confused. He thought he knew what it meant, but he didn't know the revealed plan of God that Jesus was bringing into the world. And guess what? People have the idea of born again confused today too. You know, some people, when I talk about being born again, they're like, what in the world is he talking about? I don't have a clue. Other people think it's a political block. You have those born agains. And they all vote in the same way in every election, and we've just kind of got to manage that dynamic. Other people say, you know, I'm born again, but then when you look at their life, nothing in their life reflects the fact that they would have been born again. Kent Hughes explains what born again is. He says, when one is born again, there is a radical repentance you know what repentance means? I was living one way. I realized it wasn't the right way. I intend to live a different way. A radical work of the spirit in a person's life in a radical change so that the whole being is brought into new life. Now listen, the results are discernible. They can be seen. So if I say I'm born again, but no one can tell that I'm born again, I might not be born again. That's the whole point of what he's saying there in the text. Now, you know how Jesus brings this about in Nicodemus? He begins by, or he, he moves next to challenging him to doubt himself. In other words, he tells Nicodemus not to doubt less, but to doubt more. And I believe that that's very important when you're having spiritual conversations with people. You see, people need to be brought into the place of tension if they're going to change their mind. Remember, we talked about that existential crisis. So how do they need to doubt more? Well, the first thing they need to doubt more is they need to doubt their own doubts. Doubt your doubts. What do you doubt well, a lot of people doubt that the miraculous exists. 
They kind of make a broad brush judgment. They say, I don't believe in the miraculous. I've never seen it. Therefore, it doesn't happen. Well, let's think about that for just a minute. Why don't you believe in it? Well, I've never seen one. Okay. Would it be a miracle if everyone saw a miracle? No, that would then be natural, a common occurrence. Everyone sees miracles. It's no longer a miracle. And the other question I have with respect to miracles is this. If you believe in God, one, and you believe that God created everything, so you look out at the ocean, that's incredible. You look up at the stars, and you find out that this universe expands beyond our comprehension. And you say, I can believe in that, but I can't believe that someone rose again from the dead. Isn't that a little incongruous in your thought process? Like God spoke everything into existence, but he can't raise someone from the dead? Doesn't make sense. Doubt your doubts. Why do you believe what you believe? Sometimes we make blanket statements about things so that we can turn our brain off. Secondly, you need to doubt what you've never doubted. What do people never doubt? I think it's their worldview, their presuppositions. Well, everyone knows that this is the right way to live. Really? Nicodemus, of course, is like this. He's this Old Testament scholar. He's a Pharisee. He's living according to the law. He prays. He sacrifices. He knows that he's one of God's chosen people because he was born an Israelite. And then Jesus casts a seed of doubt into all of that mix. And he says, you're not born again. Hmm. I was in a pastor's call just this week, and we were talking about you know, people and the current cultural climate and what's going on in the world. And we said, you know, when you look out at the world right now, people know that what they're doing right now isn't working. They know it. I mean, our own Surgeon General, just like last week, declares a medical emergency for loneliness. Like, we can't have basic relationships anymore. Like, people are suffering because we don't know how to be a community to one another. And no other time in history have people been more depressed than they are in this culture right now. Angrier. Uh, polarized. A lot of people aren't physically well. What's going on? One of the pastors in the group, he was like, you know what? Really, what, all you have to do in a sermon anymore is you're casting seeds of doubt on people's worldviews. Just ask them, how's that working out for you? Oh, so you pursue money and that's all you care about. How's that working out for you? How are all your relationships going right now? Or you're this, this workaholic type and all you think about is your job and climbing the ladder. How's that working out for you right now? You keep asking that question, and why do we ask the question? Well, it's because people are in autopilot. You know, there's technological advances right now, and they're trying to solve full self-driving, so you can just get in your car and go like, boop, show up to the place. I cannot wait. I am so doing that. But I gotta tell you, it's already been invented. 
people have hit that button in their worldview, and they're just arriving at a destination without thinking twice about it. How's that working out for you? The intention is to get them to hit the brake, pause, think. And the reason we do that is because it's only then that then we can start talking to them about how Jesus is radically different than whatever they've bought into. We see this in the next part of the conversation because Jesus then brings up this idea of biblical faith. Now, what he does for Nicodemus is in verses 14 and 15, he alludes to a portion of the Old Testament, the fourth book of the Bible, Numbers. And this is a story that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. He says, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is this servant thing in the book of Numbers? Well, it's Numbers chapter 21. Israel has just come out of the the Egyptian captivity. They've been walking with God. They reject God in a significant way. And so he puts them in this like wandering experience for 40 years in the wilderness. And the people do what people do. They grumble and complain. Ugh, I hate this wilderness. It's terrible. Sounds like teenagers sometimes. I love you teenagers, by the way. I complain worse than you do. But you know, you think about what's happening in there and And that elicits God's judgment when they grumble and complain. He sends fiery serpents into the camp. Remember that the next time you're grousing on the road or something. You know, God doesn't like grousing any more than you or I like it. So the people come to the recognition that they've made a big mistake. And they reach out to Moses and they say, Moses... Will you do something about this? Will you go before God? So God tells Moses, I want you to build a bronze serpent. I want you to put it in the middle of the camp. And the people have a decision to make. When they get bit by a snake, they can look at that bronze serpent and I will heal them right then and there. Or two, they cannot trust me. They can refuse to look and the venom will course through their veins and they will die. Now notice what Jesus is saying here as he compares these things to one another. The son of man must be lifted up in the same way as the bronze serpent so that whoever looks to him, whoever recognizes that he's the source of their salvation in that, they have eternal life. That verb lift up is significant in John. It always refers to Christ being lifted up on the cross. So just like in Moses' time, you respond in faith to a snake bite by looking at a bronze serpent. In Jesus' time, you look to the finished work of the cross and you will be saved. How do you think people living in the wilderness felt when they were bit by a serpent. I'll bet you things started feeling urgent all of the sudden. See, our spiritual condition is urgent. It doesn't matter what you have going on in your life. Maybe like you got overdue water bills and, and, and heat and all that kind of stuff, or you're stressed out at work. 
Let me just say this. If you get bit by a rattlesnake, like all of those things go out of your mind and all of a sudden your full mind is attending to the reality that you've got hours to live. Do we feel that sense of urgency with our own spiritual condition? You see, the problem, spiritually speaking, of us not being in right relationship with God is far worse, far more terrifying than venom coursing through our veins. Jesus says, and in the next part, he says, listen, if you are not right with God because you haven't believed that I died on the cross, in heaven's eyes, you are a condemned person already. In John 3, 18, and actually I messed that up a little bit. I believe this is John's commentary, not Jesus's words. I'll explain that later. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. It's a terrifying spiritual state. And the reason I bring this up to you first is if you don't know Jesus, your condition is urgent. I wouldn't be honest with you if I didn't tell you that this morning. I love you. I care about you. I want to see you come to know him. Secondly, we need to feel the sense of urgency as a believer. You know, we're talking about conversations and those feel laid back. And of course, we can rest in the sovereignty of God. We, we know that when we have a conversation with someone and present the, go- the gospel clearly, that they're in God's hands, that God is dealing with that. But there's still urgency. Paul says it in Corinthians. He says, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Why do you implore someone of something? It's because you believe everything's on the line. Do you believe everything's on the line when you tell someone about Jesus? I do. I do. But again, let's, let's feel this tension. We also rest in the sovereignty of God, meaning I'm not ultimately responsible for the results of this. And I believe in a big God. And and a big God takes one conversation and he does all kinds of stuff with it. In fact, here's the thought I want to leave you with is never discount the impact of one meaningful conversation. When you tell someone about Jesus, never discount the impact of that conversation. What happens to Nicodemus after this conversation with Jesus in John 3? Well, initially, nothing. Nothing happens. We don't hear of him like falling on his knees and saying, I need to be born again and let's do this thing right here. I'm praying the sinner's prayer. Let's go. Nothing. He leaves the conversation, he goes home, he processes the implications of it. He may have been like that friend of mine that we were talking about Jesus and says, you know what? I don't want to kind of have to live with the implications of that. I I think I'm just going to stick with what I've already been doing. But then as you make your way through John, we start seeing movement in the person of Nicodemus. You come to John chapter 7, 
and there's the Sanhedrin meeting. Remember, the who's who of Jerusalem, and they're talking about this Jesus situation, and this is really getting bad, and we're losing control of these things. And Nicodemus stands up, and he defends him. And then, what did the religious elites do? Well, they say, well, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let me paraphrase that for you. Nicodemus, toe the line. You better get it right about this Jesus guy. We're not saying these kind of things about him. What happens from there? Again, we don't know. I'll bet you he probably shut his mouth. I'll bet you went back and got quiet. But what we do know is that after Jesus was crucified, two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, on their own dime, with their own reputation at stake, bury the body of Jesus. Never discount the impact of one meaningful conversation. You don't know what God can do with that. Let's bow our heads in prayer. And I want to pray the same prayer that we prayed last week for our friends, our neighbors, and our loved ones. God, I know you love people. Give me an opportunity today to help someone see your love for them and hear how they can enjoy your work in Jesus Christ. Give me the boldness to talk with them about Jesus. Amen.